Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Boyce of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Professor Bruno Chauat, who is a professor of French literature at the University of Minnesota. He's also affiliated with the Holocaust and Genocide Studies and the Jewish Studies Centers in this institution. In this conversation, we talk about a whole lot. He's a very, he's the epitome of a French intellectual, which is a good thing in this instance. No, I do say that. Um, we talk about critical theory and we talk about transhumanism and humanism, enlightenment values, hubris, and many another facet of current discourse and its outgrowth from ancient orders of knowledge. Specifically, we talk about Gnosticism and we talk about the state of intellectual discourse in America right now. This is a very wide ranging and very deep discussion and I had a whole lot of fun because one of my things is being kind of a French intellectual in a good sense. Why do I keep saying that? Without further ado, here's Bruno Schwatt. So you're a professor of uh, lit- literature specifically? Or? Yeah, I teach uh, French literature and I also work in the Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Minnesota. I've been, I've been here for, eh, well, almost 20 years. Okay. So it's been a while, yeah. And in America for 30 years. Okay. And you've been an academic this whole time? Um, pretty much. I was a graduate student in the U.S. And then uh, got a job and, uh, in 1995 and then got was an academic for all that time, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you enjoy it in there, in the tower? Do, in the tower, the ivory tower, as it's called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do enjoy it. I, I, I love teaching. I really miss my students because of the of the crisis, and I. Uh, it's very tough, you know, to teach online. I, I dislike it very much. It's too too disembodied for me, mm. and uh, so I miss that contact with students. And I love writing. I love doing research. So I'm I'm blessed in many ways. I like the politics much less, but uh, like what most politics of us, could those possibly be? Well, you know, boring bureaucracy, uh, Kafkaesque uh, situations, uh, and uh, and also the lack of genuine intellectual engagement uh, that I've noticed. For a while now, actually for for a long time, it's not. It may be structural. It may be a problem related to um, higher education in general. It's hard for me to to compare. I've not really noticed uh, a sort of that lack of engagement. 
I have the impression that there is a sort of fear and anxiety of engaging at the intellectual level. So it's engagement at the sort of trivial level, bureaucratic, administrative level. But when it comes to ideas and politics, it's much more difficult. It may be also an American trait. It's hard for me to say. They are much more, well, you know, they are much, there is much more open, I would say, engagement in France than uh, than in the U.S. Uh, that, that I mean, that's my observation. It's very empirical. Mm-hmm. And are you, your teaching style, is that uh, very lectural? Do you do a lot of lectures or uh, seminars well, kind of stuff? That's the, the French way to lecture. So what I do is I lecture and we discuss. You know, the classes are very small. Uh, in French, in particular, sometimes I teach in English, so classes are a bit bigger. But usually it's mainly uh, um, lecturing. Now I do PowerPoint, you know, I engage students with citations in particular. They read less and less. Uh, you know, 20 years ago they read, I think, much more. I think now it's like very short reading assignments work longer, it's much more difficult. I'm not generalizing. You know, there are students, undergrads, who are extraordinary readers, actually, and voracious. But there are students who are, you know, I would say the, the, the majority of students really don't read much, especially in a foreign language, which I can understand. It's very, very difficult. And so they just, uh, so, you know, we, we, we dissect small, small pieces of citations and things like that. Mm-hmm. that. That's what we do. We read closely and, and short pieces. Such as what? Uh, literature? Or? Yeah, Sorry. so uh, the last course that I'm nostalgic for is the one I taught a year and a half ago, I think, before that COVID thing. Yeah. And it was, it was an introduction to French literature, and it, the, the theme was from humanism to transhumanism. And uh, it, was, it was really fascinating because we started with 16th century Renaissance type of humanism and ended up on 20th century text and debates regarding, actually regarding transhumanism, even in the U.S. and the Silicon Valley. And we showed that there was some kind of continuity, actually, between the uh, old European humanism and its, uh, you know, its sort of voracity or voraciousness for always going further, always reading more, always, I'm thinking of Montaigne in particular, 16th century Renaissance, wonderful uh, essayist, always, uh, you know, always knowing more, always exceeding the limits of the human, all the while uh, insisting on forms of moderation, right? Uh, and, and we realize that there has been a sort of perhaps a perversion of the humanistic project. At the same time, continuity and rupture uh, and disruption, if you will, with the trans uh, humanism, with transhumanism, which is also a sort of attempt at going beyond the human, right? 
but it's a beyond that is irreversible and that is, I think, much more deleterious than the good old humanism. Uh, in the sense that it's, it resembles more sort of Promethean hubris uh, than what the... But at the same time, you know, I'm thinking, there was, you know, there, there's this Pico de, de la Mirandola. I don't know if you know this uh, Renaissance um, Italian uh, thinker who uh, wrote a book called on the, on the Dignity of Man. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a short kind of manifesto in the 16th century. And, and Pico de la Mirandola says that man is actually a chameleon. And, that, you know, and there is this sort of pro, that proteus character of the human is something that I've been interested in a while now. Uh, proteus in the sense that it always wants to, man always wants to escape his condition. And uh, so I wrote, actually I wrote a book uh, in French that is now translated called uh, the, the Transhuman about starting with this quote that I love by Albert Camus, the existentialist, whom you know. Uh, in the 1950s, he wrote a book called uh, The Rebel, The Rebel, L'Homme Révolté. And in that book, he has an incredible quote in which he says, man is the only creature who, um, if I translate well, who refuses to be what he is. And that's, you know, that's very summative, that's very summary, that's very concise, but it says a lot about the human condition as a condition of dissatisfaction, of discontent, and a condition of aspiration to transcend the limitations in general that are the given, you know, biological given, mm -hmm. uh, the cultural, social determinations, you name it. There is also an imagination in the human that is the imagination of, of the non-human, which is actually specific, I think, to the human. It sounds like paradoxical, but it's as, it's as if, you know, it's as if the the proper or the main specificity of the human were actually to uh, be able to imagine an exit from the human condition. Hmm. If you think of your cat, the, I tell my students, you know, if you think of your cat, your cat probably doesn't have this aspiration to be something else than, than, what, than what he or it is, you know. But we human always want to, to go beyond well, do, do you think that that's uh, an outgrowth of Western society and the Enlightenment specifically? Do you think that in some way humanism uh, concentrated that desire to refine and go beyond what already is and then just set up that particular I am property? Because you, can, you can go back at least to the Renaissance, but even in the antiquity, you have uh, Prometheism. You know, you have those myths of... Um, of hubris, you know, those myths of individuals who want to be like the gods, right? So it, it seems to me that it's not necessarily dated to the Enlightenment. Uh, uh, it is certainly, 
accented uh, during you know during the Enlightenment, this idea of uh, of an indefinite progress. You have actually an, an, a, a heralding, if it's a word, of um, of transhumanism in the 1780s, I believe, uh, with Condorcet, the Marquis de Condorcet, who writes on the progress of the of the human uh, mind. I think the progrès de l'esprit humain. And Condorcet, C-O-N-D-O-R-C-E-T, um, actually goes so far as to imagine the possibility of immortality. So it is true that there is this hubris, if you will, in, uh, in the Enlightenment project. But I think it's more ontological. It is more related to our human condition, perhaps to the condition of the creature that has language, as Aristotle used to say, uh, that, that we are capable of imagining something outside or beyond, if you will, the human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, maybe I'm too pedantic. Or... Well, what do you think are the limiting principles? You brought up moderation. Uh where do you think moderation or the lack of moderation fits into yeah. transhumanism as uh, as we are now accessing it through medical and technological means? Uh, the lim- the moderation, the moderation, um, first of all, there has been always this moderation of religion, right? And so the law in Judaism, for example, the law is something that puts a sort of limit the, um, uh, the 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 nomos, you know, this sort of idea that you have to be restrained by something, um, you know, all the regulations and the rules in monotheism and particularly in Judaism have to do with limiting our uh, aspiration to go too far. The Greeks knew uh, the notion of hubris and condemned that and showed in their tragedy that hubris was was always going to take us too far. And so there were there was a kind of physis, uh, which means, you know, the nature and the idea of nomos of the law and the institutions are supposed to prevent us from going too far. So if there if it's possible today to go too far, it may be, first of all, because it's technically possible, or it's becoming technically possible, but also because, uh, symbolically speaking, there are less safeguards. Perhaps what some French intellectuals have called the crisis of the institutions, right? The crisis of mediations and institutions and a form of more and more form of what I would call anomie the absence of nomos, the privation of, of a law that restricts, basically. And it is, a, a, it is a factor probably of the rise of hyper-individualism that's possible. Uh, you know, if you look at the Silicon Valley uh, uh, emperors or whatever, you know, they are kings in their kingdom, and they are... Uh, they are hyper individuals in many ways, right? And they want immortality. Interestingly, it's almost in my in my research, I've almost always found only men, uh, as in uh, male, 
who uh, wanted to clone themselves, <laughs> you know, who wanted to reproduce themselves without the mediation of another, that is the woman, you know. So it is also interesting. It may be, after all, a male fantasy, uh, you know, this idea of... of the self-birthed uh, one, the self-made. Self-made, self-birth, uh, cloning. You know, it's very rare to encounter female uh, transhumanists. I'm sure that there are. You know, I've not done enough research in sociology of the transhumanist community. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's the name that immediately come to our mind when we think about, you know, Kurzweil and all those people, those transhumanists are almost always uh, men. Men have a huge anxiety with regard to death and uh, perhaps more than women who give birth um i mm -hmm. think uh, it's possible uh, you know uh, it's a pure speculation right mm -hmm. but that's the only way i can understand why it is so male-centered this fantasy of going beyond not going beyond, but circumventing, so to speak, hmm. a relation to the other sex, if you will, for uh, reaching immortality, and um, and this is very disturbing. You know, in the in the past, there were those men geniuses, so they produced their work, their opus, and the opus was supposed to be them, but in immortal form, right? Mm -hmm. But nowadays, that culture is in crisis, and that the works um, of art are more and more ephemeral, right? I think what and, and transient, so to speak. I think that what we are seeing is uh, a decline of this fantasy of immortality through a perennial, you know, uh, uh, artwork mm. or book or memoir, or whatnot, and the rise of an imminent uh, uh, materialistic, purely materialistic striving for self-continuation, hmm. be it in the form of cyber immortality or, um, or cloning or other strange ways and modes of persisting i have this uh kind of this fantasy for a while of if if i speak enough into the internet if i speak enough into youtube if i upload enough of myself the uh ais will be infected by me and my personality my curiosity uh the different parameters of my inventiveness and and the ways in which i my, the fingertips uh fingerprints that i put on language would persist and i would become a part of that thing and and constantly be exerting my influence in a way it's not as concentrated because i don't own any of those algorithms and it is totally dependent on uh, machines being able to work uh for a while and then it's also dependent on other people witnessing and recognizing that or, or speaking into those machines that are echoing me through. Mm -hmm. But I think it, it could be a you know possibility. We Algorithms are basically black boxes right now. We really don't know mm. how they do what they do. Eventually, they're just going to 
start doing things. So in a way, I think we're toying with it right now. There is a, I love the, the TV show Black Mirror, which you probably know. Right. Yeah. Um, you don't, but it's a, it's a wonderful TV show with lots of uh, scenarios of that type with AI. Um, I think that um, it remains at the level of fantasy because um, we always think of human thought, of, of artificial intelligence on the same level in tr we think of ai in terms of analogy with human intelligence mm -hmm. but um it is possible that the human thinks in a way that ai will never be able to think there was a wonderful uh, essay that influenced me a lot when i was a student i think in the 1990s, by Lyotard, who has been my uh, one of my professors, and um, and and he wrote an incredible essay, which I think is published in a book that may be entitled "The Inhuman." I think mm -hmm. uh, it's in English, and the essay is called uh, uh, "Is There Can There Be a Thought Without a Body?" And the answer is in the question. Uh, for Lyotard, it's impossible. It was impossible. Uh, because the, the embodiment, you see, makes our human thought an embodied thought, uh, as opposed to a pure uh, computational uh, thought. And it means that thought is not calculation. Thought is not only uh, rationality. It is rationality, but not only rationality. Mm. Thought, what, we, what I call thought, is connected to the aesthetic body. In other words, to a body that receives stimuli and that receives pain and pleasure and a body uh, and a mind that know and that are aware that they were born and are going to die. And I am not sure that we can get there with AI. Uh, although I have no idea, because it's possible maybe to construct an AI that would feel pain. Uh, you know, that would be that would have sense sensor sensorium, so to speak, apparatus. Yes, you wanted to. Well, we we are we already encode our embodied experience in a form of language. It's just not in the form of rationality. It's called story or narrative. So eventually, if you feed enough narrative, which is an embodied experience, or, or uh, it's the uh, simulation of an embodied experience. There's a world, there's character, and then there's a bunch of characters. And then the thoughts are possessed by the characters. And the characters themselves have this notion of death and life and, and desire and pain and suffering. So if, if the artificial intelligence can start to become a storyteller, it's just one more step or a billion more steps before you start to have it being able to generate uh, characters as real as, you know, let's say, uh, Emily Bronte's uh, 
characters or as Dostoevsky's characters. Eventually, because those are all working with a narrative, they're just a late form, late stage of narrative where you have that embodiment or that that giving forth of life of of uh, you know these specters of humans. So it is possible uh, at the level of the mechanics or the level of the syntax. Yes. Uh, it's it's sure you can do okay. it with you can do it with music as well. You can compose music with AI and so on and so forth. And it's very hard to distinguish, right? For even for connoisseur, is it a real Bach or is it an AI uh, Bach imitation or simulation? It's very difficult to figure out which one is which. Uh, I continue to believe that true and genuine creativity, at least in the sense that we understand it, is not going to be attainable by AI. Um, and it's not a hierarchical uh, judgment that I make. I'm not saying AI is less intelligent. Actually, AI is probably much more intelligent, obviously, than we are. It's very clear in many ways. But it's a qualitatively a different type of intelligence. And I think there is a misunderstanding in general when we make comparisons because we think in terms of degree, but not in terms of quality. Uh, we, t we think in terms of quantity. And quantitatively, we've lost a long time ago, a long, long time ago, right, on the computer. We've lost with chess. We've lost with so many things. So that's not a question. But at the level of what I call the aesthetic body, that is the body that suffers, the mm. body that is also uh, a pathetic, not in the trivial sense of the word, but in the sense of the pathos, of the affect, mm. this body is actually, uh, in my opinion, the hardware necessary for a genuine uh, thought and a genuine um, um, creation. So, um, you know, maybe I'm narrow-minded and maybe, and certainly I don't know enough about artificial intelligence. Uh, well, but you know, for example, if you take like, uh, why, why is it, why, so why is it that I, why is it that 2001 Space Odyssey is such an extraordinary movie? And why is it that it's also science fiction, despite everything that sounds uh, reachable, attainable, possible in the near future, and so on. Because, in my opinion, an AI is never going to be jealous. An AI is never going to be paranoid. It will be able to simulate paranoia and jealousy, but it will never be jealous or paranoid mm -hmm. because it has not experienced loss. Uh, and the human experiences loss at birth so and, and, and mm -hmm. beyond birth. So I think that what is so incredible in the anthropomorphizing of HAL 9000 is precisely that HAL 9000 experiences something that we know bloody well that AI cannot experience, jealousy. He is jealous, you remember, right, of, of the, the astronauts or whatever. He is jealous because and he's paranoid and and he he imagined that there is a conspiracy against him and that he's not trusted anymore and all those 
passions or those emotions are very human. So that's what make the character of HAL 9000 so extraordinary and so science fictional, in my view. Mm-hmm. If, if the aesthetic body is the container of creativity as we understand it, uh, un- under what conditions can transhumanism unlock or uh, distill our creativity without it us losing it? So, so I've lost connection, uh, Ben. Okay. Are you there? Are you there? Uh, now I'm here. You, okay. Can you can you hear me and see me? Am I moving? Uh, yeah, I can see you. It's very strange. Uh, I don't exactly know. You know, I I know Zoom better than uh, than I know uh, Skype. You, okay. It okay. seems to be working now. I can see okay. you. Okay. So uh, transhumanism, you said. I'm sorry. Yeah, is that is, can that make us more creative? Uh, can that uh, to what do you see there with uh, the fiddling of man with his aesthetic, pathetic body to make it a little less pathetic in the derogatory term? Perhaps is there is there something that might be lost there? Is there something that might be gained through? Uh, through experiments in transhumanism? Yeah, through boosting it through these different ways. Switching hormones, getting oh. implants. Oh, um, it's a hard question. Adding th- a third arm just because you want to. Yeah, I think that it does, for me, it responds to um, a fantasy. Uh, a fantasy of... Um, overcoming uh, the flesh, of overcoming the body. It is, um, how to put it, and also overcoming sexuality in many ways. You know, death and sexuality go together, and they, they both actually provoke some form of anxiety. And Freud once said, I don't know if people read Freud anymore or if he's not considered very seriously anymore by psychologists uh, in the U.S. in particular. He's still very, very important in France, actually, in continental philosophy as well. But uh, Freud um, once said a sentence that keeps resonating and accompanies me all the time. He said something like, uh, the man or the person who will be announcing to humankind that he knows how to abolish sexuality will be welcome as the messiah <laughs> you know and so in this whole you know this whole idea that that especially men as i said are um actually looking for ways away from this pain and anxiety of, um, of sexuality. And it is what also leads me to believe that there may be some aspect of that in certain cases of uh, transgender, transgenderism or transitioning. 
the the a certain, uh, especially among very young people, right, a certain anxiety vis-a-vis uh, sexuality, because when you think of those very young people who uh, are asking for uh, hormone blockers, for example, it's very interesting when you and it's it's you know it's it's very uh, poignant in many ways because those young people. Uh, first of all, um, are they are convinced that they are something that their body is not, right? But they also um, may be uh, terrified by growth, right? After all, a hormone blocker is something that blocks puberty, that blocks the moment of quote unquote the natural transition right so the moment of you know where, where you go from child to to adult which means this extremely uh troubling and disturbing and turbulent uh phase of becoming right um, and that is extremely anxiety triggering so uh, think about young men, young boys, I mean, boys who, teenagers who have their voice changing. That is a very strange experience, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but it can be almost traumatic. I mean, strange anyway. Not traumatic, but, but strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, same for menstruation, for, you know, girls and so on and so forth. So... There is something that um, resonated with the Freud sentence for me, that maybe sexuality, maybe the moment, you know, of the encounter with uh, the possibility of, of sexuality is something that is very, very scary. Mm-hmm. And that would perhaps explain um, a sort of contagion or sort of, you know, uh, a large number of uh, young people who are trying to delay or postpone maybe this this moment, right? Well, if you can, um, there's a lot of currents within gender ideology that make the this concept of gender equatable with the soul. And it is principle and should be principle over the body. And there are arguments within that that says that the body is kind of basically a lie. And the the reality is your gender and your gender should be whatever you want it to be. And, and access to changing your body to align with this feeling, and they, they call it a feeling, and it's very circular. It's very circular because it has nothing to do with sex. It's all about gender, which is which is completely free. But if you can force your body to align with your soul, then that that's ultimately what human beings have always wanted to do. Uh, at least on the very small earth of our body, we now are lords over it. And our, our soul, we can impose our will upon the earth uh, of, of our own bodies. This is what uh, took me to study Gnosticism. 
when I say that, people say, oh, you're an agnostic. So I say, no, I say gnostic, not agnostic, first yeah, of all. Yeah. Yeah. Second, it's hard to pronounce for a Frenchman in English because the G is not pronounced in English. It is pronounced in Greek and in French. So it's Gnostic. <laughs> uh, how, how do the French do it? Gnosis? Gnostic. Gnostic. Gnostic, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's pretty much Gnosis, Gnosis in Greek, right? So oh, yeah, it yeah. means knowledge or secret knowledge or whatever. And I, you know, I was uh, a long time ago now because... I'm very slow uh, writer. <laughs> it was a while ago. Had to mature for a long time. But I was at the dentist and I was uh, reading a magazine, you know, like People or whatever that was. And it was the. It was a while ago because I remember it was the time when Bruce Jenner became Kathleen Jenner. Mm-hmm. And I read the interview with probably with People magazine, and the interview was very striking. Because at some point, Kathleen, Kathleen Jenner says, uh, finally, I have become my real self or something like that. My true self, something like that, right? A form of, of affirmation of, of, uh, of an authenticity, which was not there before. And it really sort of resonated for me with this ancient movement called Gnosticism. Um, you know about it a little bit? or Could you, uh, maybe could you sketch it for the audience? Give us the yeah. basis on it. So it's a it's little tricky. Some people say it does not exist some, because there are too many varieties oh. of Gnosticism. So maybe Gnosticism is the wrong word for it. It used to be called heresy. <laughs> But of course, we're not going to call it heresy today. <laughs> so they decided, historians call it now heterodoxies, like the heterodox academy, right? So, yeah. But it's not a Gnostic academy. It's another story. But anyway, uh, and so um, the, uh, the, those heterodox were movements that parted away from uh, orthodox or apostolic Christianity in the, early, in the early centuries of the church. They have tons of influence, Asian, Middle Eastern, uh, you you know, you name it. Uh, Geographically, it's quite complicated. But uh, what is what may be a common uh, feature of all those different so-called heresies of Christianity are a sense that the world is wrong or that uh, the world is created by a God who was malevolent. Uh, it's the, the, the concept of the evil demiurge, right? The, the demiurge that is the, the creator of worlds, so of people, the creator is basically malignant, malevolent, and, and wanted our uh, misery and affliction. So we have to we have to repudiate this evil God and we have to find the real God. And the real God is an alien God. It's not a God from this world because this world is not something, you know, that is that is good. But the real God is good, entirely good. And therefore we have to find and the Gnostic is the one someone who is a a Gnostic is someone who thinks that he or she 
has kept a spark uh, of this alien god. And the spark is called in Greek the pneuma, like a pneumatic or, you know, the word pneuma, which means like a pneumonia, right? So it has to do with the, with the breath, with breathing, right? It's not yet spirit is another translation. for It's the translation for that, actually, yeah. And this spirit of the... So when I read Kathleen Jenner interview, I thought it's very strange. It sounds a little bit like the ancient Gnostic who thought that, uh, that this embodied self is wrong, so to speak, and that the truth of the self is somewhere, somewhere else to be found. And so I am not saying that the people who, like Kathleen Jenner, go to transition are Gnostics, but I'm saying that there are some very intriguing uh, similarities in the reasoning especially the idea of going, uh, of trying to find the real self beneath, before, or beyond. You don't know the, the location, right? It's impossible to locate because it's not in the brain, it's not in the heart, it's not in the organs, it's not, so you don't really know where it is. So, you know, be, be beyond the created, sexuated, uh, as I call it, body, right? And that's really interesting because then I did some research and found out that there are scholars of, of Gnosticism who actually have found some queer Gnostics <laughs> and some, um, some Gnostics, ancient Gnostics, who uh, believed that there was no, that, that, that the true, the, the genuine condition of, of man is not differentiated sexual, there is no sexual difference. The sexual difference has been introduced by the evil God, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have to go beyond that sexual difference because it's all about evil and it's, it's demonic. It's, you know, and, and so, uh, and so it's possible to have, and some have done it, a, a queer reading of the ancient Gnostics, if you will. But what I would like to do is a Gnostic reading of the queer movement. I think it would be uh, very interesting. I mean, that's what I a little bit sort of sketched in my in my book yeah. on the transhuman. But I think it's a very interesting idea. And I discovered recently this book thanks to a friend of mine. Uh, uh, can you see it? Or because no I cannot future see queer theory my, and the death drive. I cannot wow. see my face anymore, so I don't yeah, even I can see it. I cannot see my, the camera. Okay. So in this book was published 10 years ago or something like that by Duke University Press. So it's like an academic, very jargonish, very tedious, you know, book to read, but also very interesting because um, it is, when you think about it, it is a queer theory, queer theoretical book. Uh, very orthodox within the the queer theory, right? Very Butlerian and and so on and so forth. You know, Judith Butler and so. On. Uh, but it, and and it it actually um, celebrates uh, the anti uh, natalist or anti procreation uh, idea <laughs> that having children is actually. Um, 
subjecting yourself to heteronormativity and heteropatriarchy, right? So to a so, so you see so you see how it can function even if it's completely secular. Of course, queer theory is entirely secular, but nonetheless, it seems to me that there are vestiges or maybe resurgences of some what I would call gnostic sparks, if you will, or vestiges. Numas. Huh? Numas. How do you call it? Nuance. Numa. Numa. Yeah. Numa. Gnostic Numa. Numa. I was just. Playing the word, exactly. word game. Yeah, I say pneuma, you say pneuma. It's always this P or this G that I pronounce uh, from the <laughs> Greek. Um, so pneuma, exactly. So there are always some sort of resurgences of a certain uh, Gnostic narrative, even if we, ha- we are way beyond the death of God. Yeah. yeah. And... Well, in secularism. Patriarchy is the God. I mean, there, there's a definite uh, correlation between Yahweh and the patriarchy, uh, you know, uh, in many different respects. But let's take that as a given that, that there's a resurgence of Gnosticism. And we can read into a lot of texts the patterns of this story, the, the latent uh, kind of this story kind of bubbling up. What's the boundary of that story? And what would you argue for or against with using that story? What's the. Uh, the pitfall or the flaw in living your life like that? Uh, are you asking me to make a moral judgment? <laughs> or, or, well, okay, well, no, not, not a moral for what, what's the, what's the, uh, what's the benefit of that and the cost of that? Or how does that end up? How does that pattern shape so, your life? Let's just all right, say. So, um, all right. So in the 1950s, there was, I always, you know, I'm sorry, I'm a scholar, so I have those, those references. <laughs> it's, it's a little pedantic. But in the 1950s, there, there is a text that really inspired me a lot and influenced me. It's Hans Jonas. Hans Jonas uh, was a German-Jewish philosopher who uh, um, was, um, all, he was actually um, a student of Heidegger. And he uh, came up with a book in the 1950s that he started probably 20 years before that. It took him a very long time. It's the first, well, for the 20th century, it's the first major book about Gnosticism. It's called The Gnostic Religions, very important, major uh, volume. And in that book, there is um, an afterword. And in the afterword, there is a Gnostic reading of existentialism. And so uh, Hans Jonas makes the argument that Nietzsche, Heidegger, his former uh, professor, mentor, and even Sartre uh, have something Gnostic in them. So uh, I, I would be incapable of summarizing his demonstration. It's very complex and very technical. Uh, but he ends up saying that those philosophies ultimately are nihilistic. Uh, those philosophies are ultimately uh, based on some form of uh, relativism and, and nihilism. And uh, so he actually, interestingly, uh, bears 
um, almost a moral judgment on the movement of existentialism, which, of course, he admires and to which, to an extent, he belongs himself. But nonetheless, you know, he makes this judgment that basically it leads to forms of of nihilism uh, and uh, a sort of hyper individualism, uh, etc. And um, so I would say that what you have in a, 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 you know, a book like No Future, well, it's in your title, right? It's not just a book about very brilliant, he has actually superb analysis of Hitchcock movies in that book. So I recommend in a way, uh, it's a good book in a way, but it's also crazy in the sense that it celebrates what it analyzes. And that always scares me a little bit. So mm -hmm. it analyzes Birds by Hitchcock, which is indeed a movie about no future. It's a, it's a, it's a movie which is atrocious, right? It ends up with a no future. It ends up with the end of the world. Those birds are going to kill everyone. So anyway, and, you know, and, um, and there is a sense that he embraces this idea of uh, the absence of something that can come after new generations. And it's interesting that you talk about Yahweh, because think about Judaism. Judaism is all about generation. It's all about transmission, ledor uh, vador in Hebrew, that prayer we say, you know, on Shabbat, it's from generation to generation. We have to transmit. Now, if there is not no transcend, future, but transmit. Not transcend, exactly. It's tradition. It's not, it's not, uh, um, it's very different. Tradition is very different from uh, that sort of transcendence that I've been talking about, which there is a form of transcendence in Judaism, which is, of course, the relation to to God, the relation to the other, and so on. But nonetheless, this right now, I'm talking of a tradition. And the tradition means that you need to have um, a descendance. It's necessary. It's required. So uh, the critique that we see today, and even the condemnation of patriarchy, um, even if I am all in favor of... Uh, old type, I don't know which way if you want to call it, of feminism, that is equal rights, uh, absolute equal rights for women and equal opportunities and so on. Uh, what I'm seeing today is very different. It's actually a condemnation, not just of patriarchy, which was the old Simone de Beauvoir maybe type of uh, feminism, but of heteropatriarchy, which, or hetero whatever, which means what? Which means the relation to the other that basically, heteros in Greek is the other, which basically results in reproduction, which results in generation, is what we are opposing. So if that is not nihilism, I don't know what is. 
Yeah. Does it make yeah. any sense? No. Okay. Yeah. Thank you uh, for rooting nihilism in something that's very material. And my my main challenge to queer theory or gender ideology, this post pronoun world, and all the variations of all these genders, is that I want this group to produce an epic, a cultural epic. And I don't think they'll be able to because there will be no generation in there. And and a cultural epic embeds generation, a mythos has male, female, and it has that spontaneous uh, intersection. Now, maybe you could conceive of a, of a world that has no gender, that has no sex, where things, uh, difference comes from the same, maybe. Like there's so this, there have uh, been some experiments in France in the 19... Uh, when was well, yeah, that? Yeah, you French people are always ahead of the curve, literarily speaking. We've had Simone de Beauvoir, and I admire her very much. Uh, she said something very strange, right? She said, uh, you don't, you're not born a woman, you become a woman. You're made a woman. And, and there is a complete misreading of that by some queer theories. Or some queer theories say she didn't go far enough, she stayed within the, the, the paradigm of, of heterosexuality, and some say, well, you see, she's basically heralding and announcing uh, uh, Judith Butler and the idea that everything is a performance. But that's not at all what she was saying, if you read her closely. Uh, but um, mm. I... Uh, uh, yeah, so there have been experiments in literature in France in a sort of experimental novel by uh, someone called Monique Wittig, a very interesting figure, the lesbian, who uh, wrote a book called The Lesbian Body and uh, other books that are narratives, actually, I don't know if they are epic because it depends on what what we def how we define epic, uh, but there is a form of epic, in fact, uh, in in what she does, um, and it's all about uh, playing with the gender um, uh, indeterminacy and pronouns a lot and so on. So, to my knowledge, she is uh, one case, let's say, of experimental literature, uh, you know, that produces actually a, a work that is very interesting. Uh, I'm sure that there are many which I don't follow because I, I don't really work or, or uh, read uh, that literature. But um, hmm. I don't really know, you know, I think that, but you know, to go back to uh, Yahweh, I'm, I'm obsessed with, you know, this idea because, because, because the thing with with the Gnostics, right, is that they were um, first and foremost opposed to the creator. And, I mean, again, you know, that's, I'm, I'm summarizing and I'm actually, oh, all right, so I'm, I'm, I'm reducing and subsuming all those different trends in ancient Gnosticism within a couple of features, but it's much more nuanced. Okay, yeah. but let's say that some of them were very opposed to the Demiurge. Some of them even, uh, if you can see Marcion, uh, the Gospel of the Alien God, it sounds like uh, Raëlien or a, a new cult, uh, new age, uh, you know, <laughs> title. Yeah. 
gospel of the alien. And it is in a way because New Age has been very inspired also uh, knowingly or unknowingly by by Gnosticism. Uh, and um, and so the idea for Martian, Martian, how do you pronounce in English, was actually to decouple the Hebrew scripture from the New Testament, because the Hebrew scripture was all about evil and bad, you know, and 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 the bad God and the evil guys, and the New Testament was all about this alien God Jesus who is not from this world, right? So. Um, there are some uh, scholars, I'm thinking of Gershom Sholem in particular, uh, who was a scholar of Jewish mysticism, and who said, you know, if you want to look at the metaphysical roots of anti-Semitism, you have to go into uh, uh, Gnosticism. Uh, if you really want to, you know, because then you have, you know, uh, you know, other uh, uh, manifestations of anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism, Christian and so on. But if you oh. want to look, yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. You want to. No, no, continue. So he was saying that, that yeah. anti-Semitism has its route, roots in, in this imaginative uh, Gnostic tradition. So according to Gersh, first, I think it's it's completely anachronistic to talk about anti-Semitism for the ancient, right? Uh, we talk about something else, but what, what there okay. is, is what there is, is that there is a rebellion against a figure who is a, symbolically a father figure and a figure of creation, right? Uh, so a figure of world affirmation. And what you have in Gnosticism is a form of world denial, okay? And it goes with the rejection of the Hebrew scripture when it gets really radical, like in Marcion, what you have is a rejection of the Hebrew scripture and an invention of a Jesus who is not a Jew, okay? So you can imagine how it played in the hands also of Nazism because the Nazis had to find a way of uh, pleasing the church for political reasons, all the while being anti-Semitic. And so they thought that uh, Aryanizing Jesus was a good idea. So saying Jesus was basically not quote-unquote Semitic, he was not a Jew, he was an Aryan. And there is a trace of Marcionism, you see, in uh, Nazi theology, in theology in the time of, in the age of the Third Reich. There are books written on that. Uh, mm-hmm. One is called The Aryan Jesus in particular. So uh, it's very interesting. So you see, so, so there is a form of continuity between uh, those ancient uh, trends of world denial, procreation denial, generation denial, sexual difference uh, denial as well to an extent. Uh, the world as it is, if you will, right? The yeah, world yeah. As, as, as we inhabit it. And that is celebrated by Judaism. It's always every prayer in Judaism, as you probably know, is, uh, uh, you know, bless uh, this fruit, bless this uh, bread, bless everything that comes in this world. That's basically what it is, right? So what you have with the metaphysical rebellion of Gnosticism is the exact opposite, is cursed be, you know, cursed be this world 
and and cursed be uh, having children and having this and that. So uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know when you think of the movement uh, in France in the Middle Ages called the Qatar, C A T H A R, I think, which comes from catharsis in Greek, which which means purified, right? Pure purity. So the pure one, the pure ones, uh, there was a, um, uh, a sect called the Qatar in the Middle Ages in France in the Pyrenees, and they were uh, radically against having children and radically against uh, the flesh. So in general, so they wouldn't eat. They were vegetarians, for example, because meat was flesh and flesh was corrupt and corruption was what they were against. But sex and, and generation, regeneration and procreation was also corrupt and so on and so forth. OK, so that's very interesting because you have. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it would be interesting actually to look into certain radical vegan uh, movements, for mm-hmm. example. And take a look at their text and see if there are some reminiscences, if you will, of those movements. There, there's something in in queer in queer theory in the aesthetic. Uh, there's something kind of. Uh, I'm thinking of something in particular, but but I've I've seen this kind of aesthetic um, quality of being of things being very pornographic but not sexy, being very mm-hmm. pornographic but not erotic at all, and and being like kind of the the cartoonized uh, distilled version of sex when, when it just becomes like these uh, caricatures of sex, but it, it's missing that it's missing the sensuality. It's, it's a rebellion from the sensuality. Mm. It's a rebellion from, from the, the, the flavors and the taste, the sensations. And mm. it's distilled into this uh, kind of this archetype or this by porno, pornography. I mean, it's, it's kind of virtual. It's, it's mitigated by, by the, the virtual world. It is possible. Anyway. I'm also thinking of, um, when you talk about pornography and, of forms of rebellion against, um, creation, uh, not that I think that queer is rebellion against creation. There are certain movements within queer, like the book I was mentioning, which are explicitly a rebellion against creation. But um, I was thinking of the Marquis de Sade and his pornography, <laughs> you know. And the Marquis de Sade is the absolute uh, example of um, rebellion uh, against God. Right. Of the one who is showing God who he really is. Right. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. and all his books are about destroying or right. Rival. Rivalizing. Can you say that to be the rival? Uh, Rival. Okay. Yeah. Rivalizing. I I like that. Competing. Yeah. Competing uh, with with God and killing God and so on and so forth. So everything has to do with 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 that. And sodomy actually is is part of the uh, whole endeavor because sodomy does not procreate or does not make children. You know, so there is a form of of sexuality, which is um, uh, not uh, denies the basic process that gives rise to other human beings. Yeah, and also maybe it is also extremely deseroticized in many ways uh, because of its violence and because of its mechanical, completely mechanical and choreographed uh, aspect of the orgy in the Marquis de Sade. 
So I would say that there is something that you can see actually in Kubrick. I, I'm a big Kubrick fan, as you can see. Uh, he is one of my favorite filmmakers. And in his last movie, Wise White Shot, you see an orgy, which is very sadian, uh, sad-like, right? Uh, you've seen maybe um, Eyes White Shut. This kind of, you know, mechanics of sex, uh, which is uh, frankly not... Uh, uh, the eroticism uh, that we're talking about, the coldness, this coldness. So, um, hmm. yeah, so then again, you know, I'm not sure about, uh, about whether there is, I don't, I don't know queer culture well enough to, to uh, pronounce, make pronouncements about it, about this aesthetic. But uh, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, the idea of uh, world denial seems to be very important. And what's interesting is that it has given birth, if I may use that metaphor, to lots of extraordinary books and texts and works, you know. Think of authors, especially the French who are perverts, as you know. Uh, <laughs> like, Jean, like, Jean, like Jean Genet, you know, uh, Jean Genet, uh, queer gay uh, writer, and, um, and many others, uh, you know, uh, who were competing with, with God, I'm thinking of 19th century so-called modern or the beginning of, of what we in France call modern poetry, which is second half of the 19th century, with Baudelaire and Lautre Hamon and authors like this who were all uh, uh, blasphemateurs and all, uh, you know, uh, people who were uh, uh, cursing God and, 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 and trying to, to kill this, this figure. Uh, so, it, it, you know, so it gave birth to lots of literary production, epic, I don't know. It releases a lot of energy, Rebellion does. A lot of creative energy yeah, yeah. is no, released, no. but it's kind of spent. Um, it kind of, it's diverted from uh, being captured back into life and generating more of itself. And it's yeah. this explosion, uh, yeah. very masculine usually. In a way. Yeah, and Albert Camus wrote uh, uh, against that. In uh, the Rebel, the book I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, mm-hmm. he wrote against uh, what he calls metaphysical rebellion. He says rebellion is necessary. That's what makes us human, right? So uh, we have to rebel against uh, the breach, uh, uh, the attack against uh, human dignity. So a slave must rebel. Uh, uh, an exploited worker must rebel against the conditions, and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. Uh, uh, a black man uh, in the South, segregated, must rebel. So this is, for Camus, this is the righteous uh, rebellion. But then there is another rebellion that leads to nihilism, and it's what he calls the metaphysical rebellion against creation, against the world. To wrap this back to where we started, Mm -hmm. can there be a transhumanism that increases the dignity and celebrates the dignity of the human uh, as opposed to the transhumanism that, that ends up being an escape or uh, immortal, uh, immortalization of the human and a rebellion from the constraints of man. No, I don't think so. I think what you can have is an, um, all the, mechani- all the uh, devices of enhancing, or no, I, I should say it differently, everything that has to do with correction and with curing and with care uh, even if they sound very transhumanist, such as um, stuff that you put in your ears to to hear, they have that you actually uh, implant 
I don't know the name in English, cochlear, cochlear implants, I think. Yeah. Uh, or uh, if you're blind or if you don't see well, eyes that, that make you see. I think that there are lots of things, as long as it's restorative and reparative, I am more in favor of that. It is forms of transhumanism because it actually puts, or, you know, people who are handicapped and cannot move their arms and there are mechanisms now and devices that you can use the interface with a computer to make your arms move and so on and so forth. I am all in favor of, of that, actually, with, you know, with caution, but certainly I'm in favor of that. But when it comes to enhancing the human who is not disabled, who is not in a situation of pain or suffering or, um, uh, you know, uh, you, that, that at this point, I, I, I actually, um, um, I am against that sort, that sort of what, what we call augmentation, right, mm. of the human, which, by the way, is something you see in militaries uh, more and more. It's a debate that they have in militaries all over the world, in, you know, uh, in the West, it's how are we going to do and China does that if they don't already do that, right? It's augment, basically. So, so yeah. you're, you're okay with coffee? Uh, but not with Adderall uh, for uh, fixing your drowsiness in the morning. Then exactly, exactly. Yes, yes, yes. I am. I am in favor of medicine and technical progress. There is no doubt about biotechnical progress. Of course, we all benefit from that, all of us. But the idea that you would make a new man, a Homo novus, mm. is extraordinarily dangerous because it leads to fascism. In this case, it would it would lead, in my opinion, to a form of privatized eugenics, you know? You dropped the word fascism. Could you define that? And well, how that the connects fascism with... And the totalitarian regimes in general want a homo novus. They want a new man, always. Okay. They want to re reform entirely the human. They want to make a worker. They want to make an Aryan. They want to make a soldier, blah, blah, blah. So that's all, you know, about the fascist or totalitarian ideology. Hmm. And I think that transhumanism at its worst is doing just that, except that it's privatized. So it's not the state that does that. It's rich people who are going to buy themselves a homo novus uh, little kid or, you know, you know, or that sort of thing. So I am very, very much uh, against mm. that. Yes. Mm. We don't have time to cover everything that I want to cover with you. We didn't hit on continental philosophy writ large and critical theory in uh, particular, which you have studied. And I have uh, had several guests on my show that have critiqued critical theory. Um, maybe you would be able to add to my knowledge mm -hmm. of that. And I don't know how much time you have, but would you be able to give like a – yeah. it's a whole other direction, but – it's, it's a complex question because that's the, the problem of translatio studio room, right? How do you translate uh, uh, theory from, the, from France, let's say, to the U.S.? How yeah. does it arrive here? Uh, I'm in the U.S. now, so I'm saying here uh, in this virtual world. But you are seeing critical theory manifesting or a version of it, a, yeah, yeah, a child. It started, started a long time ago in the 1960s. It started with Derrida coming to uh, yeah. Yale or Johns Hopkins. I forgot, probably Johns Hopkins. When he started his, you know, um, wonderful, actually fascinating uh, lecture about the, the ends of man and so on and so forth. But um, 
what, so I wrote an article recently in a French uh, newspaper, so it was not deep at all. <laughs> but there was this, uh, you know, uh, but there was this idea that um, what we see now in uh, critical race theory and other types of identity theories and so on, or some people call it uh, polemically and, and with humor uh, grievance uh, studies. Um, uh, what we're seeing now is a, a sort of perversion of the uh, French stuff because the French stuff was very much universalist in spite of uh, the um, criticism of universalism. So let me try to be very brief. Um, the, the French did not really believe in identity. They did not believe in um, the uh, notion of a fixed identity, right? Uh, so they, 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 they had deconstructed this notion of a subject who is equal to himself or to herself in a, a race or in an ethnicity or whatever. What we are seeing now uh, with uh, the new forms of critical theory, uh, I don't know if it's the right word, in the US in this importation is something very different. It's actually what I call fetishization of identity, which is really not at all. It's actually the exact opposite of the Derrida, the Blanchot, the Deleuze, the uh, Foucault, and so on. It's completely opposed to that. Now, I never understood whether this is strategic or whether it is uh, uh, genuinely in intellectual. Oh. Because um, you remember Gertrude Spivak in 1980s, maybe, or 90s? She came up with a, a concept which I find very objectionable. is the concept of um, uh, strategic essentialism. In other words, I, Gertrude Spivak, I'm against essentialism because I come from deconstruction and Derrida and existentialism and Beauvoir and so on. But... Because it's politically uh, uh, profitable, I am going to affirm uh, essentialism and race and so on. I think what we are seeing is actually the disaster of this type of cynicism, uh, you know, of using uh, um, uh, an intellectual philosophical category for purely strategic reasons. One thing to be an essentialist, if you want to be an essentialist, that's fine. You know, you have an identity, and you're French, and the French have a national character, and I'm an essentialist. Okay. But it's another thing to use it for political, polemical, and even strategic uh, purposes. I think it's a problem, because in philosophy, we have to be genuine in the search for truth. So that's what I think. So perhaps what we are seeing now is possible. You know, because that's always the discourse that you hear. That's the reason why we never know how to engage with critical race theory. We don't know how to engage because there is something profoundly ontologically disingenuous in the whole project. Because when you say there are no race, so I don't see the color. So they say, you see, you're racist because you don't see the color. But then, but then, but then they're going to say, to respond to someone else who is a racist, whatever, uh, there are no race because race are, are a construct. So it's almost impossible, right, 
to to engage. We always lose in engaging with that sort of uh, um, critical race theory. So that's what makes me very frustrated. Okay. Uh, because I think we have to be genuine in philosophy and in thought. Okay. But if uh, it goes back to uh, Socrates uh, and uh, the sophists, and if the sophists are, they don't care about truth, they care about power. So it's not about being genuine or being a hypocrite. Who cares about that? It's about advancing your political will. Yes. Um, and if philo- will philosophy not succumb to that cynicism and that power game? Will it not eventually be wrecked, or at least the academy, or all the structures that support it? Um, Fall I think under the it's, already, it's already pretty much wrecked. Uh, I think that there may still be some enclaves uh, of resistance, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe in history, here and there, maybe in, uh, in, in some departments of philosophy where they do, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, non-continental or maybe in history of philosophy, what do I know? But uh, in the humanities uh, at large, writ large, I think it's, it's not in a good Situation. We're not in a good situation at all, because I think that yes, I mean I think that this uh, sort of cliche of power knowledge that comes from a, a very poorly digested Foucault uh, is actually ruining uh, uh, thinking, right? Uh, a genuine, genuine thinking, genuine engagement, where you can have a real dialogue, uh, Socratic, where you can have you know you know so, some some real contradictory debate with someone uh, as opposed to where do you speak from? Uh, do you speak from the proletariat or the working class as they say in 1960s and 70s in France, right? They always ask, where do you speak from? Oh, and, okay. yeah. yeah, where do you speak from? Do parle-tu? So no, if you speak from the working class, that's fine. We're listening to you. If you speak from the bourgeoisie, we don't listen. To, it's the same you know, pattern. It's not thinking. It's agonistic. It's uh, uh, fighting. So, you know, that's not what I want to do. Do you project um, a path forward, a path uh, towards uh, restitution of genuine philosophical debate? Uh, Or rather, do you have principles that you can share uh, that you would like people to implement in engaging uh, publicly with other ideas that will uh, cement uh, a more genuine discourse broadly? For me, uh, everything that happens happens either in my study where I'm uh, with myself and with my books or it happens in the classroom. And I really think that there still can be very, very genuine conversation, discussion, and disagreement in a classroom. And I think it's up to, it's up to us educators to try to create an environment, an atmosphere, I'm not going to say climate, which word I hate, an atmosphere of genuine contradiction, of genuine questioning and critical thinking. I think, I hope, I am still able to do that. Maybe, you know, it will change. But for the time being, I am I'm still optimistic that I can still do that. And when I can't, I will, I will quit. Hmm. Are, are your students receptive to that? Or are yes. they uh, becoming right. infected with the power knowledge? They are very much, very much receptive to that. 
in fact. Um, uh, students who work hard when they are face to face, if I may use that metaphor with a text which is complex, and when we read it and dissect it uh, and um, show the many ways of reading it and how it resonates with our present uh, and with our condition, you know, which is basically the humanistic tradition, then, then I think that they are, there is someone there who can listen and who can actually learn something. Yes. Are you hopeful? Are French people hopeful? Are, are, are you a hopeful people? French people, they do. Woof, you know, <laughs> always do. I, I don't know. <laughs> That's what we do. Fair I'm enough. I'm a skeptic. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so your book, you have articles uh, here and there throughout the web. Do you have any books that people can check out? I, I saw one is for sale. It's about critical theory. Is theory good for the Jews? Uh, mm -hmm. And that's an academic text right now. Um, yeah, it's published by Liverpool University Press. It's not been translated into French. Uh, it was uh, well uh, well reviewed in uh, uh, Jewish review of, book, uh, review of books and several other places. And uh, I have a book. I have three other books, but they are in French. And I'm working on a new book in English on the resurgence of the Gnostics. Uh, in uh, actually in uh, in France from early 20th century to the present. Hmm. So hopefully I can have you back on my channel in about a decade when you finish that book. Yeah, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, the thing about uh, you academics, it takes 20 years, but at least it's readable for for uh, for 25. Maximum. Yeah. For 25 for 25 people, you mean? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so a big thank to uh, Ora, my friend Ora, also for giving uh, you my name. It was extremely nice of her. Yeah, and this is very enjoyable. How do I pronounce your last name? Because that is a lot what? of vowels. Shawat. 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 Okay. Yeah, okay. I can do that. Uh, uh, that was my guess. All right, Professor. Well, thank you very much for your time and uh, have a good evening. And I'll let you know when this is up. Thank you, Benjamin. Bye bye. Ciao. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.